Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Stephen Blackwood, Boethius Scholar and President of Ralston College. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Stephen Blackwood. Uh, He's held fellowships at Harvard, Cambridge, and the University of Toronto, and is the founding president of Ralston College. Dr. Blackwood, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So I am curious to start off and to learn a bit about your childhood. You grew up on Prince Edward Island. I think many uh, of our, 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 our listeners today hear Prince Edward Island, and they think Anne of Green Gables, um, that very picturesque, beautiful uh, vision of, of kind of childhood. Uh, what was your childhood like? What was your early education like? And what was it like growing up as the oldest of 10 children? Gosh, those are those are big topics. You're, you're striking on, you know, with my big family, it's probably the most formative uh, thing in my, in my entire life. I was actually born in Alberta, which I often describe to Americans as the Texas of Canada, to essentially a sort of pioneer families on both both sides, uh, but moved to all the way from the west to the, the far east coast of, of Canada to Prince Edward Island, a tiny little island nestled in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, as we say, when I was eight years old and uh, lived there until I went off to, went off to college. Uh, well, I'll start with PEI, as we affectionately call it. Prince Edward Island is uh, Canada's smallest province. It's a it's a very, very beautiful pastoral place. Long winters, simply sublime summers. Red soil, uh, famously red soil. Deep blue ocean, you know, blue skies. Uh, of course, we get all the whole range of weather. But I'm trying to evoke the sense of the the kind of rolling landscape of uh, of a place that. Well, let me put it this way. Do you know how, I don't know, you know, some of your listeners have probably moved around and others have perhaps, you know, really feel like they're from somewhere. And and because I was born in one place and then grew up somewhere else and then my family moved again, uh, I don't really have an ancestral home, like a place, I don't really feel at home in the place that my grandparents mm. are, are, are were from or that my great-parents were from because I, I spent so much of my life elsewhere. Uh, but when I'm uh, uh, back in, in PEI, um, I feel I feel home, uh, and and I feel home in a way in that kind of deep sort of the sense of the terroir, the sense of, of you know what is the bird song like, and what is the what does the wind feel like on your your cheek, uh, you know in late June, you know when the when the lupins are out, um, you know I think one of the things that we've lost in this uh, uh, sort of global uh, homogenized non culture culture is just how Often, at least not not all of us all the time, but we're we're losing or we have very much lost a the sense of richness of how much 
I mean, human life really is lived in the particular. There is no abstract human life. There's only human persons. And we human individuals live in particular places, times, you know, you know, good and bad uh, with, you know, particular families and, and siblings and relationships and, 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 and cultural moments and so on and so forth. And uh, though I, I, I wouldn't reduce everything to nature in some, some way, I think we're, we're also from landscapes and from seasons and from, mm. uh, we're, we're from, we're shaped by these particular things in our lives. My childhood and in, in, in teen years in Prince Edward Island was very formative for me. It's an extremely beautiful place. Nature was a big part of my, my growing up. I once skied to school, uh, if you can believe it, I, you know, along the railway tracks, which were no longer used, I should hasten to add. Um, uh, uh, and we had a milk cow, so I grew up in a kind of a, in a, in a sort of pretty farmy situation uh, in, rural, in rural Canada, essentially. Um, with a lot of responsibility, I have nine younger siblings, uh, seven brothers and two sisters. These, uh, these with my parents are, are, you know, greatly beloved by me. Uh, and, and I suppose it's important to say that, that, you know, family life, I think is pretty formative for everyone. Cause it's you know, like where you grow up. It's like the early, early defining forces in your life, you know, your parents, you know, if you have siblings, you know, grandparents, whoever else is around in a way, um, but in my life, certainly the responsibility of having many younger siblings, but also the, the great gift of being able to live with them and peer into their lives as an older uh, brother at each stage, I think is the, was really the bedrock of, insofar as I have any, my insight into what the human being really is into what human nature is, and perhaps above all, into what pedagogy or teaching is. A great teacher is not someone who, who, somebody, who, who tells someone what to think, sort of forces it upon them. That would be totally coercive. There's no, that's not what teaching is at all. But nor is it sort of just leaving people to their own devices. The, the art of being a teacher is finding the right way in the right time, the right words, the right, the right things to learn, for a particular individual at a particular time that allows them to open up in the way that their, their particular talents and abilities and desires make possible for them. So anyway, that's a little bit about my, 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 my childhood. And then in terms of, of education, can you speak about that? Did you love learning as a young kid? Did you love books? Was it forced? You know, people ask me quite often about, you know, childhood education, early childhood education and Though it is true that I had, I think, a, a very respectable education, I was publicly educated my entire life. I, uh, that is, at least until I went to do my, my doctoral degree, I was, went to public institutions from uh, the very, really the very beginning. And I think I had, you know, very respectable education there, you know, a solid public education. Certainly, I took to reading. I, I was actually slow to learn to read. I, I could hardly, I nearly failed the second grade because I couldn't, couldn't read well. That actually proved to be typical of many of the boys in my family, but I. But when I learned to read, I be, I I really loved reading. But I I actually think it's quite important to say that the the most fundamental influences I think early on are not they have nothing to do with with school. I think they're they're having a stable home certainly. Uh, but if you want to talk about because I think really the question is 
Because there's certain things you just can't teach young people. You can't teach them philosophy. They can, can't learn to become an architect. You know, you can't teach them chemistry. I mean, all these higher order things. That you, so it's actually about what do you need to learn in order to be able to appreciate those things later? Or more importantly, what do you need to learn in order to open yourself up to the possibilities of a, of a, of a full and flourishing, meaningful human life, no matter what life throws at you? And it's going to throw a lot of things at you. And I think actually at that level, uh, what I usually say to parents is that it... Uh, experience of nature, I think, is very important. I think experience of music and the and the arts, but certainly is perhaps especially music from a young age is is very is very important. And some experience, it could be religious or non-religious, but some experience of what I would call kind of the whole of things. You know, some ability to orient yourself relative to transcendent realities that can take the form of prayer, of course, but uh, nature and music can do that also. Uh, but some ability to ref autonomously address yourself to what most is. So Dr. Blackwood, I want to pick your brain for a few minutes about Dr. Jordan Peterson. It seems like you're, you're connected. You've interviewed him. You've written extensively about his work. Certainly. I'm a, a proud and blessed to call uh, that man my, my friend. My question yeah. is, you know, he, he has such an appeal among especially young men. It seems to have emerged... In, in ways that it hasn't in the past, really just from kind of the quality of the teaching itself, perhaps. What is he saying that is so attractive, I, I think, especially to young people and especially to young men? Well, I'll say a few things. I think the first thing to say is that in my pretty extensive experience, I've, I've been with uh, jo Jordan Peterson in different countries and different cities. Um, my experience is that. Uh, that he has a very broad appeal. Uh, perhaps the biggest Peterson fan that I know is a 71-year-old woman. Um, and I, I've personally encountered many, uh, many women of all ages who are, who are deep admirers and very, and, you know, who've listened to his book several times because they found them so helpful. So uh, that said, I think that there probably is a significant sense in which his voice is especially necessary by no exclusive way, but in no exclusive way, but especially need, needed by many, particularly young men today. And I think we, we would do very well to reflect a bit about on why that is. But let me first answer your, really your fundamental or most, so your penetrating question is, you know, what is he, what is, what is he doing? Like, what is it about Jordan Peterson that has made him, uh, brought him to be so beloved by uh, so many people? And, and though, of course, Jordan is is by some people known for taking a a strong stand in 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 defense of of uh, well, I, let's say against uh, government coercion of speech was certainly one of the things that he uh, became well known for. And he's a he's a well known uh, let's say you know scourge of of certain forms of ideology. Really, above all, I think what his critics failed to see is that Dr. Peterson puts forward a positive vision of what a, a human being can become and gives very concrete advice or steps. I mean, they're called rules in his books. They're kind of guides to life that, that, that help unfold or unpack, help you realize what is potentially, potentially in you. I actually see it very much within the well, the whole ancient tradition of, of ancient medieval tradition of pedagogy, you know, the, the Greeks have a word uh, uh, which we, it comes into English as a psychagogy. It's the leading of the soul. It's the way in which 
you move through deepening forms of self-knowledge and and will in the world um, uh, by uh, insight and uh, discipline and illumination. And I think fundamentally, we're living the, the meaning crisis. Is a good meaning, meaning crisis is a good shorthand for where we are. The, the scorched earth landscape that many young people find themselves in. Maybe we're talking about about opioid, dopamine, and porn addiction. We're talking yes. about you know profound forms of alienation. Mm. Uh, uh, that, and you know what? It needs to be said because people, you know, I hear a lot of ranting. Some of it's justified, but you know, angry about you know the, you know the woke this and young people this. It's not young people's fault that we haven't given them meaningful ways of understanding themselves and living in the world. It's yeah. not their fault. Yeah. In fact, it's our fault insofar as we're older than they are. Mm-hmm. And you know, fundamentally what Jordan Peterson does is he, he gives people a robust and frankly, not at all unconventional or even controversial framework for, you know, it's, like the, it's like the stuff that you, maybe your grandmother would have told you. Um, a lot of it anyway, um, it, it gives them a framework in order to, I mean, yeah, how radical is that, you know, clean your room? Or I think from the new book, I, I haven't actually, uh, haven't had a, yet had a chance to get into, but I think one of the, the, the rules there is to choose a room in your house and to make it as beautiful as you can. Ooh, scary, scary, you know? I mean, what that's beautiful, fundamental advice. What it's telling someone is, here's how to live in a richly meaningful way in the world that will be meaningful not only to you but to others. And 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 Jordan pulls no punches. He he's not a constructivist. He he believes that the human being has an innate relationship with truth. And that you tell the truth and that's not because you know God will punish you if you don't. It's because your nature demands it. If you want to lead a meaningful life, you need to tell and seek the seek and tell the truth. And so what I, but I would finally say that 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 what Jordan also does very brilliantly is through his recovery or discussion of certain uh, mythological or sort of iconic structures and stories, whether it's Genesis, I mean, you know, Pinocchio, uh, whether it's things from various other traditions around the world, uh, he he gives people metaphors or allegories within which to understand their own story or trajectory. And and we fundamentally need that. I mean, that's what the role of myth is, what the role of story and narrative is. It's not that these things are, are, are literally true. It's that they are even deeper forms of deeper descriptions or representations of, you might say, fundamental structures or um, uh, truths within uh, the nature of reality itself. And so what I would say finally is that these these are not some sort of neat and tidy you know rules for and then you do this and then you do that and then you you make money and then you do this no it's completely blowing that open he's saying life is hard here are some basic uh, bits mm. of advice that will help you face the actual difficulty of reality but also uh, unfold the inner dignity uh, of your subjectivity your soul of which which only you can do and which we need you to do I could pick your brain all day uh, about this, but I, I want to transition to talking about higher ed. Uh, I, I believe that higher ed is is contracting. I'm not alone in this conviction. Maybe as many as 30% of brick and mortar colleges are going to close. Uh, there's there's many reasons for this that we could discuss, but the fact that it is contracting is, is undeniable. In the midst of this, you're launching a new college, which is, is fascinating to me, uh, with with a different vision from what I, I'm typically hearing from colleges currently in, in existence. So it's called Ralston College. 
Tell us about the name, the vision, the mission, uh, and, and what motivated this this undertaking. Well, Ralston College is a new institution of higher education based in Savannah. We have essentially, well, let me d- deal with first your your question. Of, I think you, you rightly point out that you know higher ed in many respects is contracting, and that would then seem to be you know very much at odds with that trend. Would seem at odds with well, if there are four thousand universities and colleges in the United States, and many of them are, are likely to close, you know, how can you possibly justify founding a new one? Well, I would actually say it's that very trend that demands that we found new ones because mm. because at some level that is a those closures are symptoms of the fact that higher ed, not recently, a long time ago, lost its way. And so the 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 argument I would make is that actually the the though I'm not a catastrophist, I don't want to absolutize or seem that I'm some sort of a, a you know, I'm some sort of a Jeremiah. Um, nonetheless, I do think that the situation in higher education is very bad from many different angles. You've got the financial angle, you know, the student loan crisis, you know, nearly or about $2 trillion in, in student debt. Most of it, by the way, it's not as though those are, there are assets against those debt. Like if you buy a house and the house is about worth something, you have something for your debt, right? But, ma- but in many of those cases, those degrees are not worth, they're either not finished they were not necessary or they were not worth the, the, the paper they were printed on. I mean, really, frankly, a lot of that is just wasted money. Now, uh, but beyond that, you have the bureaucratization of the university, the vocationalization of the university. Universities are terrible at job training. I mean, horrific. They've never been good at it. They never will be good at it. Um, and then finally, and and perhaps most most uh, in most high pro- in most high profile right now is the ideological corruption of the university uh, universities at large and especially of the the humanities the the so called uh, cancels culture uh, but you know just broadly speaking a spirit of censorship which mm-hmm. which is 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 utterly incompatible with with the very bedrock of what a university must be. So in that context, uh, you know, we really think that uh, there are certain forms of inquiry, well, free inquiry itself, and certain forms of study that are, frankly, the the condition of a free and flourishing human culture uh, of any of any higher order, uh, but certainly are are at the the core of what Western civilization has been. Uh, and what we've come to understand that, which of course spreads uh, around the world, um, and so, so our our aim with Ralston College is, in one sense, you know, very large. It's to play some role. Maybe it's just a small role. Who knows? It's not up to us what to know mm-hmm. what will come with our, our of our efforts. But yeah. to to return to the fundamental, the iconic, paradigmatic activities uh, of human intellect that that are that are absolutely the the the, the wellspring. Of uh, the pos- of what we human beings can 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 become, the ways we think about and understand ourselves at every level of our culture. So it's not just what happens to those who go to the university. It's like let's take uh, uh, Martha Argerich, you know, I, 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 the great the great pianist. I can't play the piano. I mean, a few chords here and there, sort of thing. But no matter how much I dedicated myself to it, I would never have been able to play the piano like Martha Argerich. But the point is because she can and does. All of us can hear the music. So it's the way, you know, I'm not an architect, but when someone builds something beautiful, that becomes part of how I understand myself, uh, how I, I think about myself and the possibilities. For, so that's what the humanities at large are. And uh, Ralston College has essentially a, a double vocation, both on the one hand to, to be a reinvention and a revival of the traditional university with in-person degrees, uh, perhaps online degrees as well. Uh, but also on the other hand, to 
to break down the barrier of, or let's say the walls of the ivory tower and everyone anywhere. And in that non-degree space uh, in which we think there is right now a vast hunger and frankly, a huge opportunity, uh, our aim is simply to break open the doors of the storehouse, the treasure house of humanistic inquiry, of music and art, of philosophy, of literature, and share it with anyone, anywhere, uh, both in person through short events, and of course, obviously, also online. We have a we have now a partnership with FutureLearn, a global online learning platform with 15 million users in 200 countries. Our first courses will be coming out in uh, the next couple of months. And so, uh, what I'm what I'm trying to describe here is is a, is a double vocation that's both about reinventing the university and disrupting that space that is in such a perilous state, and about uh, completely. Uh, uh, reinventing or being part of reinventing how uh, people access uh, uh, meaningful conversations about uh, uh, questions that are fundamental to human life. And that's really what the humanities are. And I would say in closing that we have really have just four simple commitments. Uh, First, to seek the truth with courage. Second, to apprehend beauty in all of its forms. Third, to the freedom of thought and speech on which those depend. And finally, to the the friendship or fellowship that is the the context for those pursuits. That's fantastic. And then final question for you here, and this is always my favorite. Uh, we love books here at CLT. And we love to to talk to our guests about the books that have, have changed their, their hearts and their convictions and have been formative uh, to their kind of life journey. I'm wondering if there's one uh, text that, that jumps out to you that maybe you go back to perhaps every year or two and reread. For me, the work that I think has most powerfully moves and illuminates me every time I read it is, is in fact, Homer's Odyssey. So I, and I'll just I'll say a word about that. Uh, I think the thing about reading Homer is that it's a kind of a complete world. It's a it's a sort of a, a complete world in the images. And as you think about those images and give yourself over to uh, and meditate upon what's going on in those uh, line by line and in the the the, the narrative uh, and story as a whole, um, uh, in a, there's a certain sense of which which everything is in there. A, a very rich vision of the human, uh, an understanding of the relation of the, the human being to the whole and to the to the moving parts within the whole, uh, to to you might say to reality itself, to the non-negotiable difficulty and 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 the superabundant beauty of uh, the real itself, represented in some sense by the gods mm. in Homer. I I guess I would just say I think in the story of Odysseus, there's there are many moments in which any single one of us can come to understand our own selves better. You know, the first time I read the actual book on my own and and, and started to talk to people about it, the, I think there's something there that really speaks to. It's so counterintuitive. I mean, twenty five hundred years old, three thousand year old story. Uh, and I remember the first time I taught it to high school juniors and was talking to some of the students about it. Um, in some ways, that would be like the ultimate for, you know, a, a lot of young men reading it. But what he really wants to do is get back to his aging wife more than anything. I, I found that incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I think of like what what is it at the end of the day that makes a classic a classic that makes it totally timeless is that like when we stop and think about it long enough, we go, oh, yeah, that actually does make sense. But it's not our our first impulse uh, for sure. Uh, now, do you do you reread the Odyssey every every couple of years? Is it a book you've taught over and over? 
Yeah, uh, yes to both of those questions. I think I've last read it two or three years ago now. Um, but if I can just make a quick comment about that beautiful scene that you've just you've just talked about, in which uh, he's on Calypso's island. Here he is, you know, living the life with a goddess. You know, uh, you know, no doubt. No, all the wonderful things to eat, and uh, uh, he's got these immortal garments, and he's you know, he's making love by night to this to this goddess. You know, Homer gives us this amazing image, and yet and yet he spends his days crying. He says mortal tears into these immortal clothes as he longs to see even a wisp of smoke rising on the horizon of his home. Mm-hmm. And I think in that beautiful image, Homer gives us. Um, Homer is speaking to the nature of human life in its in the deepest sense. I mean, what what are we as finite creatures? What is home? And you know, really, what the story is about is about um, you know why should why should Odysseus want to leave that island if not that somehow there is something greater, more him in something you might say immortal in his mm-hmm. mortal life. And I think in a way, I believe that not only is that a a longing that all human beings have, I think it's the unique challenge and opportunity of uh, every one of our lives. I, I love that you say that. I mean, and it's kind of like I me, mean, you're a high school junior reading that. And I think it's, it's so important to talk about right now because we're looking at, you know, schools in Massachusetts canceling Homer, canceling the Odyssey. You know, and if you're a high school junior, and this is my thought teaching this the first time, you know, maybe five or six years ago, but a high school junior, especially a boy, is very likely to think, man, the fullness and happiness of life is if I can just have all of my impulses satisfied. And then here you're you're confronted with a man who he's got it all. Any impulse can be satisfied, but there's something beyond that, which is is I think the reason why it's so crucial uh, that we keep putting this this story in the hands of young people. Yes, and and also, you know, it does it perhaps needs to be said that those who would, there's a reason why Homer has to be taken off the curriculum for those who want to take him off. And it is fundamentally because he so completely resists and overcomes their soul-destroying ideology that they know he is their enemy. Mm -hmm. He is is the ally to any human being seeking to be realized and to live a full and meaningful and beautiful life. But he is certainly the enemy of those who wish to conquer and destroy the most beautiful inclinations of the human soul. Beautiful. Uh, Dr. Blackwood, this has been a real treat to spend time with you today and uh, all the best on your journey as you launch uh, Ralston College into a four-year undergraduate and graduate college. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. 